0: everyone this morning we are beginning a new series a series called this is us this is messiah this is us this is who we are because we know that the church that the church isn't isn't this building that we meet in and especially right now with so many people worshiping from home you don't have to be in the building to be the church no 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 you're the church You are the church because you gather in the name of Jesus. You love Jesus together. You praise Jesus together. You want to live your lives with Jesus together. So it doesn't matter where you are or where you gather. The church is us. And this is us, this series, is about the values that drive our church. The values that drive our church. And to get into that, I want to share with you from the Gospels. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. Uh, it's in the Gospels where Matthew, who's a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, he tells us exactly what Jesus is up to, exactly what Jesus is all about. This is Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed And helpless like sheep without a shepherd then he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into his harvest field I think about that the harvest is plentiful and Jesus said it and it must be true if Jesus said it and if it was true then Probably true today, how often as the church do we think of the harvest being plentiful? I think sometimes the church spends a lot of time feeling sorry for itself. Like, back in the day, it felt like we had so much more influence, and now it's like our culture is against us. It's the culture's fault. And I think Jesus is saying, no, 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 the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful. But there's more people not attending church and more people who are unbelievers in our country now. And yeah, the harvest is plentiful. I want you to go share my grace and my love. I want you to go share it with them. The harvest is plentiful. If you'll go share it with them, you can change everything. You can change their lives because that's what the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to do in their lives. See, in the early church, it, it's really not a lot different than it is today. In the early church, as people started to, be, to come to faith, the early church had to kind of wrestle with an, an important principle. An important principle. And the principle was about God's grace. Like, who is God's grace for? Who is the church for? What's this all about? And it was the same thing that, that Martin Luther struggled with just 500 years ago. Uh, Today's Reformation Sunday, Reformation Day, is actually on Halloween. Uh, Luther picked All Hallows' Eve on purpose because it's a day, of course to us, it's a day that's kind of spooky, and we think about the dead. They did the same thing back then. It was a spooky day. It was a day you're kind of thinking about your own death and what might happen, and, and that's when Luther decided to start a protest to to put up words that would ultimately reform the church. He wasn't necessarily trying to reform the church, reformation, but he was trying to reform the way they thought about the gospel. See, Luther was worried that the church was excluding people. Luther was worried that people didn't understand that salvation was a free gift of God and that it was meant for all people. But he's not the first one that struggled with that. In fact, in the early church, James has to come together with all the disciples. Because there's a lot of people that are saying, well, wait a minute. All these Gentile people, these people who are not Jewish, these people who are foreigners, they're wanting to become Christians, but we're not sure if they're Jewish enough. They're not circumcised. They don't eat kosher Jewish food. Culturally, they're not like us. They don't pray like us. They don't think like us. They don't look like us. And finally, James kind of calms the crowd and goes, here's the point, guys. This is in Acts 15. This is James. He's the little brother of Jesus. He says, we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Like, if people want to come to God and salvation is a free gift, we can't make it difficult for them. Like, we can't let all our cultural things, all of our traditions, we we can't put that stuff in front of them and say, you got to jump through these hoops if you want to follow Jesus. Especially because Jesus is saying, hey, this is all a free gift anyways. And what James was dealing with in the early church, what Martin Luther was dealing with at the time of the Reformation Sometimes it's the same thing that we deal with today. I think sometimes it's what happens is we have a misunderstanding of what the church even is. We start to think that the church is for Christians. When really it's the church is Christians who are for the world. See, we start to think that the church is for us. It's a place that Christians go, but we need to think about the church as Christians who are for the world, to bless the world, to heal the world, to share good news with the world. And that's why this first value is probably our most important value, found people, find people, because it is by varying definition what the church is even is here for. Why the church? Why does Messiah exist? Why did Jesus come up with this idea? It's because found people find people. And over the next few weeks, this is what we're going to really dive into. These are the values that drive our church. When I say values, values could be words on paper. No, these are the behaviors, the values. These are the behaviors that Christians at Messiah need to embody need to live out found people find people why the church because the church goes and finds the lost the church goes and finds the lonely the church goes out there to be with the world to love the world save people serve people we don't come to church to just get our thing no we come together as the church to serve each other and to serve the world A church where faith and real life, they intersect. I mean, I think a lot of times you can go to church and you can think church is the place where you hear about the spiritual stuff on Sundays. And yet we're not supposed to take our faith and take our real life and we're supposed to separate them. I mean, there's churches that you can drive up and down 94. You're going to see church after church after church. And I'm sure a lot of them would tell you, hey, we're a church, and, and, and we, we preach the truth. We share the truth, and, and that's good. I mean, we're a Bible-based church, and I'm sure probably most of the churches up and down 94 are Bible-based churches, and I'm sure that they are trying their best, or at least from their perspective, they are sharing the truth, and I hope that's true. But what ultimately happens is sometimes just sharing the truth, something that happens to be true, doesn't necessarily intersect with my real life. What we're passionate about here at Messiah is making sure what you're dealing with in your real life, your faith has a whole lot to speak into that. Even think about your pastors. I mean, your pastors, we're just real guys. We're real people, we wear real clothes. Uh, Maybe back in my study this week, maybe I was Dr. Mueller and I was studying the scriptures like a theologian, maybe. But here right now, I'm just Jim, and I'm a husband, and I'm a father, and I'm somebody that's got bills to pay too. And I know what it's like in the real world, in real life. You have marriages, and you need to work on your marriages. You have kids, and sometimes we struggle with our parenting. Sometimes you have to deal with debt, and you want to know how to struggle with debt and and how to get out of that sort of thing. I know that real Christians, real people in this community and in this room, we're not already fixed. We all need more fixing. We battle depression. We battle stress. We get it here. Because you're real people living real life, and so are your pastors. And the good news is the Bible cares about that stuff. Jesus has a lot to share about that stuff. And I love every church that wants to share the truth. We share that in common. But what makes this value very distinctive to Messiah is we are a church. We are a church where we know that we need to be reaching the lost, found people, find people, save people, need to be serving people. Faith in real life, they need to intersect. Number four, life is better connected. We've learned that a lot over the last six, seven months and more. It's easy to get isolated in life. And nobody should live life, and nobody should live out their faith alone. So we need to come together in community. And lastly, the faith of the next generation, it matters now. I think in a lot of churches, they believe in the next generation. They might say the faith in the next generation, it'll matter later. But what we're finding is that if we don't engage the next generation now, like if we don't empower them now, if we don't get them serving and leading now, oftentimes they're not even coming back to the church. So these are the values we hold dear. These are the values that we know need to drive our church. And and here's the thing. It doesn't seem like people are walking up to churches anymore, like you see a sign on the road. People aren't necessarily seeking out churches anymore and knocking on the church door and saying, hey, tell me about what you believe, and if I believe the same things, and I'm just going to go to your church. The front door of our church cannot be the front door of this building because that's been tried for a long time, and it's no longer working because lost people don't go to church. And guess What? Jesus never told lost people to go to church. Jesus told the church to go find lost people. Let me repeat that. Jesus never told lost people to go to church. He told the church to go find lost people and to love lost people and to be with those who are hurting and to be with those who are lonely and to be with those who need to be fed to be with those who need to be clothed. The new front door of our church needs to be your front door. The new front door of the church is the front door of your home, of your home. Jesus has asked the question, hey, rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? And of course, in the Old Testament, there's like hundreds of rules. There's hundreds of commandments all these things that you're not supposed to do, all these things you are supposed to do. So Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, they ask him. And Jesus says, you are to love the Lord your God. But the second commandment's really the same thing. And love your neighbor, he says, as yourself. So you love God, and you love your neighbor as myself. And then they ask, well, well, who's my neighbor? Is it my next-door neighbor? Is it my coworker? Is it a friend? Is it a family member? Is it somebody who lives on my block? And the answer is yes. And their door into our church is your front door, is your front door. Uh, this is what's happened. This is what's happened. I want to share with you a graph. This is a, a trend that's happening in the United States. It's a trend of church attendance. Now, on this graph, it's, it's not measuring what percentage of people in America go to church every week. Actually, the bar set a little lower. This is people who, number one, go to church once a month. They show up at least once a month, and number two, they say that their faith is critical and important for their lives. So this is a graph of people who say they go to church at least once a month, and their faith is important, it's critical for their lives. And back in 1960... Back in the good old days, back when America was a Christian nation, right? That's what you'll tell me. Only 48% of people actually went to church at least once a month and said their faith was central and critical and important for their lives. Less than half back in 1960. And you can see what happens in the trends. Over time and through the 70s, and some, some of you remember things that were happening in the 70s, uh, that number started to drop and it dropped close to 40%. And it kind of held there through the 80s. And this is when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. And then in the 90s, there was a tick up. A lot of churches, this is when the non denominational movement happened in our country. In the denominational movement, they said, you know what, maybe, maybe. Churchy church isn't working as much. We're going to try to do some things different. We're going to try to think about the way that we do music and and what we talk about when we're speaking. And we're going to change the way we do church. And we saw a tick back up for a while in the 90s. But really, that only held for a little while. And then the trend started coming back down. Back down until 2000. And then, right around 2002, there was this huge jump in church attendance. Like, it hadn't been that way since the 60s. What had happened in our country? 9-11 happened. Terrorists took planes, and they crashed them into buildings. And thousands of people died. And Americans opened their eyes wide. And they said to themselves, we are not in control of our lives anymore. And we're scared and we, maybe we need God. And they started to pray, and they started to come back to church. And when they were in church, they gave a little more in the offering plate. And it was right around that time, 2003, 2004, that most of the newer worship centers in our country were built. And it's because people started going back to church. People started to give to the church. They started serving in the church. But then the trend started again from 2000, around that time, to 2010, Suddenly, we watched as attendance had just dropped. And in 2010, only 35% of Americans could say they went to church at least once a month and that their faith was critical and important and central to their lives. You can go to Barna Research and look up any of this. And in 2010, pastors started saying, we got to do something about this church. In fact, we started warning you that the next generation is not going to church anymore. If faith doesn't seem essential to them. we got to do something about this. And from the next 10 years, from 2010 to 2020, it dropped even more drastically. In fact, in that 10 years, we lost a bigger percentage of people than we had lost in the previous 50 years put together. Today, only about a quarter of Americans, 25%, can say they go to church at least once a month. Oh, and by the way, if you're under the age of 40, which we define that as the millennial generations, the millennial generations are pretty much everybody that's under the age of 40, people that are just a little bit younger than me. They are people that are digital natives who grew up with cell phones and internet in their homes. Like when I went to college, I didn't have an email when I started college. It didn't exist. When I went to college, internet didn't exist. When I started in college, I didn't grow up in a home as a digital native. But the generations that followed me, people that are under the age of 40, including all the kids that are alive today, out of that generation, out of those people, what percentage of them go to church? So 25% of all of America go to church currently, at least once a month. What percentage of the millennial generation goes to church? Look at this, 4%. My graph doesn't even have room for it because that number would be like down here. 96% of Americans under the age of 40 do not attend church and do not say that their faith is critical and important and central to their lives. 90%, 96% of the millennial generation does not go to church. We are at a point where the church could disappear in one generation and we need to wake up now this is not just a bunch of numbers these are people these are people that you love these are your family members these are your friends they're my family members and they're my friends too and that's why we want to be the kind of church where found people find people will we understand that the lost they don't want to go to church Instead, the church has to go to them because you are the church. And it was never about the building. Because people that we care about, people that you care about, don't know where they're going to spend eternity. And God loves them. And Jesus says, and yet the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. And it's more plentiful than ever. And, and if that 4% number is alarming to you, just think back to Jesus. What was his number at his time? How many Christians, how many followers of Jesus? I mean, they didn't even have churches back then. So I guess if you worship Jesus, you just, that meant you were hanging out with Jesus. What was his number? Jesus' number was like 12 people total. And then there were also some women that loved Jesus. And then later on, it says at the end of the Gospels, it says only a few hundred. So you think about of all the world and all the people in Israel at that time, how many people worship Jesus? And yet, after Jesus left and the church started to gather, Peter and the boys, they didn't start saying to each other when they were in their house churches, hey, why isn't anybody else coming to church? They, they never said that because they believed they were the church and they were to go to the world. They saw the whole thing differently. And, it, and they changed everything because of it. The disciples, they never felt sorry for themselves. They were never surprised that the country that dominated their world, Rome, didn't have the same values they did. They didn't worry about that. They understood that. But they went in with the kingdom of God and they turned that kingdom upside down. Because they shared the gospel and they loved their neighbor as themselves and they praised God in everything that they did. Now, this is how it's played out in my life. I'm like a lot of you in the millennial generation. When I was growing up, when I was in high school, a lot of my friends were not Christians, a lot of my friends didn't go to church, and they weren't believers. But one of my friends, Sean, who's one of my best friends in high school, Sean wasn't just not a Christian. Sean wasn't just somebody who didn't go to church. Sean was probably the strongest atheist that I had ever met. And likewise, one of the brightest people I ever met. So it was pretty tough news if you were a Christian in high school and you wanted to invite him to go to Baptist camp with you, Sean would tear you up because he was smarter than you. And I remember it was I was in college at University of Texas, and at that point I was on my way to law school, but I made an about shift. And I remember sharing with a lot of my friends that I had planned to go to grad school, and they all thought, oh, that's great. You know, you're going to go to grad school. I said, actually, I'm going go to go to seminary. That's a grad school for people that are training to be pastors. And not only that, I'm thinking about being a, a missionary. I actually want to go and, and, and help start churches that lost people love to attend. And my friends are like, okay, I mean, that's a little weird, but okay. But but Sean, when I told him the news, he said, that is terrible news. Because I'm not a Christian, and there is no God, and you're wasting your life. And I said, well, it's going to be a long summer, and you're my friend, and you can tell me everything about that you want to. But I'm going to share with you as well. And he said... Okay. So we went through the summer and I remember we shared a lot of things and shared a lot of things about ourselves and what we believed or what we didn't believe. And I remember one point um, I had tickets to a Christian concert. I had invited this girl, April, uh, but she wasn't able to go with me. Um, now, we weren't married then and we weren't even dating then. We were just friends. So I guess that was okay. Uh, But I remember Sean asked me one day, he said, "Uh, Jim, so what are you going to do tonight? And I said, I actually have tickets to a Christian concert, and I don't have anybody to go with me. And he said, "Uh, well, maybe maybe I'll go with you. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. Is it going to be weird? And I don't know, I said something like Christian girls are prettier or something. So he went with me, and we went to the concert, and, and the whole time, like, you know, I'm watching it, and I'm enjoying it, but I'm also kind of, like, looking over my shoulder, like, what does Sean think about all this? Like, he's got to think this is really weird. A few weeks later, like, we were working out, and I remember I was driving him back to his house, his parents' house, and he got out of the car, and he had walked up to the steps, and I was about to pull away, and he kind of ran back down to my car. So I rolled down my window, and I, and I said, what, did, did you want a goodbye kiss? And he said, Jim, I think I'm a Christian. I've been reading the Gospel of John, like you said. And there's something to Jesus. I think he, I believe he's real. And I think this is the way I'm supposed to live. And I looked at him and I said, I'm so sorry. Because he walked back up to his house with his head turned low, dragging Because he was so sad. Because he wanted to be smarter than Christianity. And he wanted, with everything in his heart, not to believe. But he did. And his whole life got transformed. The next year, we're in college together at University of Texas. And he started attending our campus church with me. One day we had announced that we had a a new faith class for those who didn't really understand the faith and they just kind of wanted to learn the basics, besides what you heard in worship, but like, just get down to the basics. Like, why do you believe the things we do? And he said, I think I should attend that, but I don't really want to go alone. Would you go with me? And I said, sure, I've already been through confirmation before. I'll do it again in my 20s. So I went with him, and and he went through that faith class, and he ended up becoming formally a Christian in church and joined the church. And I remember the first day that he came to communion with me, and we were were at communion together. I remember I felt his shoulder touch me, and when we were getting served, I was just like, God, I never thought if anybody would have come to faith Sean was the last one who wanted it. I can't believe he's here next to me, taking in your body, taking in your blood, and professing your son as his Lord and Savior. And then the next week, uh, our pastor had invited me to help him serve communion. And So I remember I'm going around, and I'm passing out the body of Christ for you, and a body of Christ for you, and I'm passing out the bread to everybody. And when I put it in Sean's hand, I remember he just kind of gripped my hand a little bit. And I'm just thinking, again, I can't believe... I'm serving the most sacred meal to the one person who never wanted to believe. But he did. A few years went by. I'm serving a church in the Houston area, and I get a phone call. And it's from Sean's soon-to-be fiance. He already had the ring. Uh, She already knew he was going to ask. And she told me that he had died in a car crash in his mid-20s. It wasn't foul play or anything. It was daytime. It's just the axle in his car broke, and he was on an interstate, and he had died. And she said, Jim, would you please speak at his funeral? I said, sure. And I remember when I showed up in the room, there were hundreds of people there, all these people I went to high school with, all, even teachers from my, from my old high school. I bet they were the most surprised of all that I was a pastor But in the front row, I saw his parents, his two sisters, and the girl that he was supposed to marry. And I got to say to all of them, we have lost somebody that we love. But don't believe for a second, Sean isn't dead. He's alive again. Jesus says it this way. He tells three parables about why this is so important. That found people find people. He tells a story of lost sheep, and a story of lost coin, and then the story of a lost son. The story of a lost sheep is a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep, and he's doing a good job taking care of the 99, but one of them has gone away. But instead of like staying back and protecting the 99 and thinking, hey, I still got an A plus on my report card, no, no, he actually goes out in the wilderness to search for the sheep. For just one sheep, he's willing to search. He's willing to fight off wolves. When he finds the sheep, he's so happy. He picks it up, puts it on his shoulders so he can run back to the village. And when he gets to the village, he wants to throw a party. He wants to celebrate with his friends because this is a big deal. And do you know how Jesus finishes that parable, that story? It's in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, here's the thing everybody needs to repent. Christians, we need to repent. But in a way, this is what he's saying. When one person comes to faith, there is more rejoicing in heaven than the fact that 99 of you showed up in church today. And God's leaning over the rails and he can't wait when that happens. He's just watching to say, church, are you going to go find the sheep? Are you going to go find them? And will you celebrate with heaven when it happens? He tells another parable. It's the terrible of the lost coin. It's a woman and she's alone. She only has 10 coins to her name. That's enough to buy food and to live for maybe a week and a half. But she loses one. What would you do if you only had 10 coins, and that's all you had to live on, and you lost one? Well, you would do as she did. She started to look everywhere. She's sweeping the floors, just trying to find one little coin, because it's everything to her. And when she finds it, she's overjoyed. And she wants to tell all her neighbors this good news. And Jesus finishes that parable, that story, the same way. He says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is nothing that gets heaven more excited than when the church goes out and finds the ones who are lost and finds the ones who are alone and finds the ones who need God who are searching for God and invite them into God's family the angels are writing songs about this stuff the angels are going nuts in heaven to sing these hymns with you if you would just go out and share your faith and open up your church to them and then he tells one more parable the parable of the son and this is a pretty tragic story. It's a son who asks for his inheritance early and then goes out and squanders it. And the older brother's thinking, oh my gosh, that is the kind of kid that you cut off. That is the kind of kid that you disown. But that is not the kind of God we have, and that is not the kind of father this father was in Jesus' story. No, he's a father that waits at the end of the driveway, hoping his son comes home, praying that his God son comes home. He wants to forgive his son and bring him back into the family. And at the end of the story, at the end of the parable, Jesus has a father talking directly to his son. And he says, Here's the thing about your brother. We had to celebrate. And you need to be glad because your brother was dead and he's alive. He's lost and he's found. When I hear a parable like this, I can see Jesus speaking directly to me and it's personal. Because it's my friend and it's an eternal difference and Jesus did this for him. This is how God works. This is what God wants to do in the church. And I think it's time for the church to stop feeling sorry for itself that we didn't have the influence we did. There is an influence that Jesus gave you and it was the gospel and it's what you're called to give. You know, this has been the weirdest year in ministry ever. And it was like way back in March, we had to figure out if people couldn't come into a church building, how were we going to be the church? And especially when it came time for Easter, we knew, hey, you you can say that we can't be in a building, but you can't cancel Easter. You can't cancel Christians worshiping, and you can't cancel Easter. And so like in one week, We started doing church online. It was the only way we could worship together. But don't tell anybody that they didn't go to church. No, we're the church. And so we worshiped at home. And some of us, we're still doing that. A lot of our community at Messiah, you're still at home. And we get it. But we know that you're in church. You're with us because you are the church. And we celebrate that. And so this changed everything. We started with online ministry The way we do church, because we were desperate to be together as Christians. But something started to happen. More and more people started tuning in, and they started reporting back to us that they're giving faith a second chance. Families that we've never met. One of these families started to watch us on Easter Sunday this year, and we didn't know them at all. We never even heard from them until just a few weeks ago. And a few weeks ago, they contacted our office and they said, "Uh, Pastors, um, we think we want to join Messiah. And not only that, we want to have our twins baptized. And by the way, Dad, Justin, he's never been baptized either. Because he didn't really grow up in the church much. And so last Sunday after church, after all of you left and you went home, some of us got to stay behind as Pastor Chuck Got to baptize these two twins and then baptize dad, Justin. Let me show you a little video clip of that Sunday. Taylor and Elizabeth Sharoma, I baptize you in the name of God the Father Mm -hmm. and in the name of God the Son and in the name of God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Titan, Stanley Sharoma, I baptize you in the name of God the Father and in the name of God the Son. And in the name of God the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen, Titan. All right, well done, well done. And I'll tell you, Justin, I don't get to do as many of these, um, but I'm very happy. And what is your name? Justin Roger Sharma. Okay, Justin Roger Sharma. I baptize you in the name of God the Father, and in the name of God the Son, and in the name of God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Congratulations to the of. Oh. I thought, I thought Pastor Chuck was going to dunk him in that water. Because, and you know who's the happiest person in that room? A glowing wife. Do you see a smile on her face, her two babies and her husband whom she loves? and they're all part of God's family, and they know God loves them, and they want to be a part of it. And that's the thing. Like, as the church, we never give up on people. We never give up on what God can do in their lives and how God wants to transform them. I'm so proud to be a part of a church where found people find people. I know there's a lot of communities out there that preach truth. But we need to be a church that is watching out for the next generation. We need to be a church where the lost loved to attend. A church where unchurched people love to attend. And that's what these values are going to be about. These values are about the church becoming the church. God.